All right, so let's go back to compassion. We live in a world where you have hurricanes and you have systemic issues of oppression. We have well, there's a countless. I mean, there's a list that it seems overwhelming. And then you have this. Oh, I feel I feel sorry for you. I'm sympathetic. You send someone like you said last week a Hallmark card. And then there is this deeper, greater compassion that that we're all supposed to aim for. And I say even, I mean, regardless of of where we are in our faith, um, that, that this is something that I think that we could all agree upon. How do you how do you cultivate that greater compassion within your lay people? How do they then extend that to the greater community? Do you work with interfaith groups? Uh, yeah, what is what does that even look like in Denver? And then oh, let's just start with our city. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. So compassion, because it not only requires fearlessness but consistent action, that is kind of what we promote. Um, you know, it's one thing to send a Hallmark card, but another thing to actually go and visit that person and try to see how they're doing. So. Um, I myself am on an interfaith council uh, at DU, so I'm in touch with people like the director of the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado, who they consistently keep me abreast of any kind of action opportunities we can get involved with. So I try to keep my sangha, my congregation, updated on those. Uh, last weekend, in fact, they had a an event with the Sikh community here in Denver, the uh, Lunger, I believe it's called, and that's feeding all who need to be fed. So we gathered together in, um, is it Civic Center Park? That's right in yeah, front right of the Capitol there. Yes, yeah. thank you very much. Civic Center Park and, uh, yeah, pretty much just prepared food and handed it out to the homeless. So we try to promote things like that. Uh, personal cultivation is always important in Buddhism, but because that is, again, something that it takes time to do and a lot of people don't have the time that we feel it's more reasonable and easier to attain this state of boundless compassion by going and doing what compassion is to suffer with others and i mean that sounds kind of bleak but when you're there with somebody and able to engage in their life or engage even in conversation it helps you to become that person or to at least kind of understand where they're coming from and where their suffering is coming from. So, so you encourage your people to get out of their house, you know, turn off the TV, turn off the phone and yeah, go meet with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And so in one of the things in which our Christian t- tradition says that it does well, and it may in some churches and it may not in others is we have these things that we like to call, Dan, you ready for it? Account- accountability partners. Oh, he hates it. I knew it was coming. <laughs> is it like an AA sponsor? Yeah, it's kind of like that. Thing? But okay. it, it's, you know, ended up being like, did you masturbate this week when you're in high school? And true. You, sh- you should have given and? a warning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then you're trying to, trying to, yeah, call him out. Oh, sorry. But but in yeah, but in the in the greater acts of accountability, just like we have greater acts of compassion. Or no, before, be- actually, it's before. It's it's. Hey man, uh, I I'm about to sin. <laughs> Please stop me. Guard your heart. 
Okay, so in, in all seriousness, though, and I, I use that we had fun with that word. This it's supposed to be somebody who is open to allowing their what we call your brother, your sister, your friend, somebody who cares about you to kick your ass in a loving way to mm-hmm. say, how do I better myself? And I think we, you and I even talked about this at a remix once at the pub a few weeks back mm-hmm. when you were there. And yeah, I, I am okay if somebody cares about me, if they actually want, if, if they're going to speak truth into me because they care about me and my family and, and where I'm headed and it's not about some other ulterior motive, mm-hmm. I'm open to that. Is there any of that in your tradition when it comes to cultivating compassion and, and works of justice and righteousness? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, the term would be Kalyana Mitra, a good Dharma friend. So in monastic communities, that is somebody that would, would be your accountability guy because they have a whole lot of very specific rules that they're supposed to be following. So if, yeah, if you're having a hard time with something, this would be somebody that you could go to and sort of confess to I did this or thought about doing this or whatever whatever um for us uh, in the Jodo Shinshu tradition uh it's ondobyo we call them fellow travelers so and that's pretty much considered to be everybody who's traveling with us so uh yeah, compassion has all kinds of elements to it. So compassion is not just, hey, buddy, you're doing a good job, but it's also, hey, you really fucked that up. So don't do that again. And it is encouraged even in Buddhist texts that as long as it is done from a place like from the place of a parent, you know, you're not raising your voice at your child or getting grumpy with them because you're a terrible person. You're doing it because you actually have genuine concern for the well-being of your children. And so sometimes that comes in the form of being kind of, oh, okay, don't do that maybe. And sometimes it's like you stop now and getting like super, as my daughter calls it, super grumpy mom face and super grumpy mom pointy finger too. So (laughs) there's, yeah, there are all kinds of elements, but it is considered a compassionate act if you're keeping somebody from hurting themselves or other people or yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good to know. So we should keep that tradition alive. Come on, Dan, but we'll call it something different. It's all, it's all language. fellow traveler. That's cool. Mm, let's do that. Um, so how, how much, and I want to tie this into compassion and maybe you can help me connect the dots if it's a thing, but, um, how much of a role does nonviolence play into your specific tradition and how does that tie in with this conversation around compassion? Uh, that's one of the things on the spectrum. So in general, uh, Buddhists would prefer to go the nonviolence route, but we're also pragmatists. And we know that we live in a world where that's not always possible. So again, I guess going back to... The example of being a parent, Uh, so I've got a 13-year-old daughter, and while I prefer to adhere to nonviolent things, if I saw somebody doing something to her, I cannot guarantee that nonviolence would be my path of action. So it's... 
you know, we, again, we're very pragmatic about it. It's hopefully we don't have to, but sometimes it's, it is what it is. It's necessary. So, um, in fact, we were just looking cause we're, uh, as an organization have been looking into, uh, charities or whatever that we can send some donations to because the, Burmese Buddhists are really just oppressing the hell out of the Rohingya Muslims in Burma right now. And it's, it's disgusting. And one of the organizations that we came across was the Free Burma Rangers. Uh, they're actually a Christian group, but many of the members of this organization are members of the armed forces, like special forces guys. And they're doing all kinds of fabulous work, getting people out of uh, specific militarized zones and things like that. And sometimes they got to shoot a gun once in a while. And again, for, you know, when you're dealing with things like guerrilla warfare, when you're trying to bring people to safety and you're being shot at, their primary concern is the person that they're taking out of there. So if they have to shoot back, it is what it is kind of thing. So in those situations, it's not ideal, but it is what it is. You know, you can't just say, hey, everybody stop, stop being so shooty. <laughs> Let's all be nonviolent because nobody's going to listen to that. So I really like how. Um, you kind of put context to everything and say, you know, this is what we want to believe, but in certain situations, I, I think as Christians, we have a tendency a lot of times to try to be holier than thou about everything and say, this is what we believe. And then just like go behind everyone's back and, you know, instead of saying, <laughs> instead of being upfront, you know, that's, that's what the Christian community has always done. Unfortunately, it's sad. Um, but you know, kind of in that space, compassion obviously can be difficult sometimes. So like, um, you know, if, and you even brought up the idea of Hitler earlier, like, you know, you're walking up to Hitler on the streets, like what happens when, you know, as, as Hitler is, you know, sitting there turning on the gas chambers, are you going to walk up to him and try to solve that problem with compassion or are you going to, you know, race in and save everybody and then try to shoot Hitler if you can? Right. Yeah. No, uh, by any means necessary, because your compassion, if you have the great compassion of a Buddha or Bodhisattva, is going to be directed in both ways. So if he's just got his hand on the little nozzle, you go and slap his hand away and get everybody out of there. Um I don't know. Shooting him may or may not be necessary. Depends. It's a very situational kind of thing. Um, but yeah, you, all of these things, so situational. <laughs> like, again, the ideal, if we were perfect, perfectly enlightened beings, would be that we would know what to do with every bit of that action. Um, and again, the ideal would be that you're extending the same compassion to Hitler. So slapping his hand as though he were a toddler and like, no, 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 don't touch that and go sit over there in the corner until I can come over there and then saving everybody um but as human beings obviously we're going to direct ourselves towards where the greater suffering is so however we could get people out first um 
would be probably the the more likely scenario. Okay, so that brings back um, a conversation that was had like probably a year ago in pub theology um, at uh, at this outdoor bar. I don't remember where it was. Anyway, it was it was fantastic because I was sitting with Liz, who is kind of our has been our resident Buddhist oh, forever, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, she brought up the point of from the Buddhist perspective. She always wants to try to do whatever is the best thing in general for the world. It doesn't necessarily matter if it's for the person in the situation, but you're always trying to weigh, you know, the options. So let's, you know, like, uh, let's put it in this situation. Like we all know Hitler's evil, but what if the gas chamber is filled with evil people too, or, or even just one evil person to make it Mm -hmm. like more similar, you know? Who and you you can only show you know I'm gonna save you to one person at this moment. Mm-hmm. How do you try to factor that and make that decision? You can only do the best you can is how we see it uh again, without perfect wisdom, it's impossible to know because yeah, like you said, you're looking at the situation and from where you're standing based on whatever your personal life situation has been, whatever you have learned over time, that's how you're making your decision. So again, for most of us, probably we would just see a group of people in trouble. It might be a group of assholes in that chamber, but we don't know that. And those kinds of things, split second decision. But we know what he's done before leading up to that And so our decision is based on that particular thing. So, yeah, I mean, we can't, we don't have perfect wisdom. We can't see every single thing. And in a lot of situations, we don't have time to parse all of that out. So it's, again, we do the best we can with the information that has been collected in our brains and hope everything works out okay. (laughs) So So I think just bottom line, what you're saying because I think Buddhism has a stereotype with all the little Buddha statues and the meditation symbols and the the dialogue around compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's it's sometimes the compassionate thing is to whoop ass. Yes, and um, and the, the responsible thing. Mm-hmm. So it's not. I mean, I think that's just, just to go to remove the stereotype around the yeah. definition of compass, compassion and the mm-hmm. symbolism around Buddhism. Yeah, and a lot of that is just drawn out of how Buddhism. Uh, one of the channels that Buddhism came through in this country. So, with immigrant Buddhist communities, uh, the teachings and the practices tend to look more similar to the way that they're practiced and taught in the native countries. Whereas um, the other way that Buddhism came in, and this is the more popularized Buddhism that people see day to day and where they get a lot of the ideas of who we are came through uh, kind of bougie academic channels. And so that's how Buddhism came to be seen as philosophy and not religion. Um, And a lot of the focus, so it's coming through, you know, people who are come to be the transcendentalists. So like Henry David Thoreau and William Wordsworth, and it comes through the beat generation and it comes through the hippie generation, all people who are looking to a sort of do and practice something outside of their 
the religious traditions they grew up with, which a lot of them found kind of oppressive and very hierarchical. Um, but they're also blending it with this very American sense of individualism. So I, the, again, a very toddler ideal of I do it myself. Um, so the focus is less on community, which is also very kind of unusual for Buddhist traditions and more on the, I'm going to do all of these amazing practices and myself become a Buddha. But then you've also got all of these civil rights movements going on. So the idea of this is a very peaceful, beautiful religion, and this is the part that people ended up glomming on to. So a lot of Western Buddhism, when it starts to talk about compassion, uh, it did get kind of skewed to the you know, be quiet and be kind and gentle all the time kind of ideals. And so I think we're seeing a bit more of a switch over these days. But yeah, for many, many years, because of that's how it had been taught in more visible channels, I guess. That's how it came to be seen the way it is now. But I guess even with compassion, it seems like it how it's uh, conceptualized and how it's lived out still varies from tradition to tradition, mm -hmm. community to community. Because mm -hmm. um, I think of guys like Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a uh, Vietnamese Zen Buddhist, mm -hmm. who kind of is more on that m more strict, nonviolent mm -hmm. route based on what I know about him and, uh, you know, his uh, involvement with guys like Martin Luther King. Right. Um, so I kind of wonder how much of that, like more high profile Buddhists kind of shaped the, the, I guess the American imagination of what to be Buddhist means. Like, I didn't even mm -hmm. know, to be honest, even though I've, I've studied a little bit, I didn't know that there were traditions of Buddhism that were not, um, meditative, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. I, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's fine. That's what most people, they're very surprised when I won't teach them how to do meditation. I what's the point? Yeah. Sit quietly. I'm going to go out back and have a smoke or something. I'll, <laughs> I'll ring the bell in five minutes. Mindfully. So. <laughs> yeah. That's what you're getting. If you're coming to my temple for meditation. Um, well, and yeah, I think that too is very time and place specific. So, I mean, obviously Thich Nhat Hanh came out of, the Vietnam War, um, but also came out of a tradition where the monks lit themselves on fire in protest. And that is an incredibly violent action, like maybe not specifically to another person, but that's an incredibly violent thing to do just in general and made a hell of a statement. And so I think coming out of that sort of environment one would really appreciate the idea of peace, of nonviolence, of, you know, because both he and the Dalai Lama lived through a lot of very traumatic, very violent experiences. And based on that, I'm sure, and obviously I don't know them personally, so not speaking for them, but just saying that based on the Buddhist idea of causes and conditions, the idea that all of our stuff in our heads is shaped by experience, we would want to veer one way or the other. So probably coming out of a tradition of such extreme violence, 
yeah, you'd want to try to push forward the idea of everybody, let's be nonviolent. I don't want to see this happen to anybody else. I don't want this to be the result of things that are going on. So... Yeah, because uh, in Thich Nhat Hanh tradition, uh, one of my personal very favorite feminist writers, Ms. Bell Hooks, is uh, a member of his sangha. So, and she, though she writes extensively on love <clears throat> and how the civil rights movement sort of used that over time, uh, you know, she also doesn't deny that, yeah, some of this civil rights movements, things like that. These were things that were drawn out of anger. And so, you know, it was a matter of being able to temper it and direct it in a better way. So I think that's what even the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh are trying to, there's a lot of anger behind this. There was a lot of violence. There were a lot of ugly things going on. How do we use that experience to direct it into something more positive? So, And could you speak to... um Something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is is having compassion for oneself. Um, in the Christian tradition, you know, we have the saying of Jesus that, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And the way I, I kind of interpreted that as of late is that in a way we can't love the other as ourself. There's a contingency there of having to love yourself first in order to to be able to approach the other with with love and you know i kind of maybe we could talk about the difference between love and compassion but i see them as as related um because you talk a little bit about compassion for oneself Mm -hmm. um yeah i think it's a very similar thing so one of the big ideas throughout buddhism is yeah you kind of have to get yourself right before you can start specifically if you want to start teaching others because yeah absolutely if you're if you're not all the way together it's, yeah it's hard to help other people so the idea would be to really yeah have compassion for yourself so in our tradition specifically we do talk about it translates as the evil person. Um, I think I talked a little bit about that at the pub the other night. This is my friend. He's evil or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> <was> funny. Exactly. <laughs> so it's not a judgment call. It's just the state of all of us. We are capable of every single thing depending on this situation. So... For us, uh, again, the goal in ginormous quotation marks is to understand that about yourself. And once you kind of realize that you goof things up, you don't know everything in the world, that, you know, things just sometimes things just are what they are. We can't control external forces at all, hardly. And so we just do the best we can and it's when we get to that point that we're able to more fully relate in a compassionate way to other people because then we can do what sort of the definition of compassion for us is and that is we suffer with others because otherwise 
we're just, um, <laughs> what would be the word for it? We're just projecting. We're projecting our own shit onto other people and just making everybody is suffering worse. So if we can come to a place where it's like, okay, we're all suffering full stop, not you're suffering with this, you're suffering with this, and one is better than the other. It's nope, we're all suffering. And then that's the point where we can get to more full compassion for ourselves and other people. So one of the one of the things that I I'm overwhelmed a lot by so much that's happening in our world and having two little girls, I also feel a little bit guilty cuz I spend so much time Cause with them. Cuz you're a white man. I get it, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, like cuz I I'm Boom. like I can't just, I can't I can't do that much. I don't I don't have the capacity to uh, to do all the things which I would like to do and and I'm okay. I I'm becoming more okay with that in this season. So with all the acts of injustice and all the areas of concern in our world. What, what do you think is the most pressing issue right now? And how do we collectively come together and have greater compassion? If you could pick one or two, maybe I know it's hard to pick one. Maybe you could even pick three. Why not? Where do we need, where do we as, as the human race in America in this age where it's so, it's uh it's painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. uh, that would be a hard one. I don't know if I could focus in on any one specific thing because, yeah, over the past, whatever it's been, year and a half, I've had nonstop uh, waves of members coming and asking very similar questions. And for them, I always just advise that you got to do what's important to you in the moment, because I think sometimes what gets a little overwhelming for people uh, and causes what is called in like clergy and psychiatrist communities is compassion fatigue. When you see so much going on, you stagnate because you don't know where to start. So I think for that one, it really is up to each individual person. Something is going to touch somebody more than it would. Um, I don't know. I think on a broad level, probably the most important thing would just be Again, get out there with whatever it is. Uh, I am consistently heartened by the fact that at the temple we have field trip groups in all the time. Everything from middle school groups up to uh, I've been doing a series of classes on Buddhism at St. Timothy's Episcopal Church out in Littleton there. And it's their attempt just to learn something. They, you know, so it's very nice. I tell the kids all the time that, you know, you don't have to agree with the different religious traditions that you go and visit, but it's good to understand where people are coming from because, again, it humanizes people and it makes it slightly less possible for us to just make people into faceless monsters. So, yeah, I mean, I think the best thing to do is to... You know, find your issue and then go do it and not just donate money, but go and interact with the people somehow that are suffering in the best way that you can. Because, yeah, I think it's a lot of just, yeah, othering that goes on that causes so many of these problems. It's very easy to other groups of people without actually knowing them. So... Yeah, that's a good reminder. We had this conversation a few weeks back also with Michelle Warren, who 
lives in Denver and talked about this power of proximity. And so it's the issues are really about the people go and do it, do the one thing. I mean, stick with that. Cause yeah, compassion fatigue will kick in if you're overwhelmed by everything and you can't pick one thing and people say, Hey, come join my cause and my cause. And you're like, I, I should, I feel guilty that I don't, but I don't, I don't know, you know, what's going on over there. But yeah, I think we all, we all probably all deep down inside know what's, what's happening in our midst. Yeah, that kind of brings me back to um, Janelle has said this to me a million times, and and it's just that, like, pick two things. And she said she had someone who told her that at one point, and it's just so true because in my life, I, I used to be the biggest overachiever and that worked in high school and college, right? Like, and now as an adult, I want to continue that, but I can't because I, if I, you know, I, I want to go and my church is very active in uh, working with the homeless community. Um, and you know, and I want to be involved in like politics right now. And I want to be involved in this, that, and the other. And it's, it's just not possible to do it all because like in high school and college, it didn't matter if, if things got busy and I made a C on a test, it wasn't that big of a deal. Right. But now if I don't focus on my job and I get fired, I lose my house and that's not so cool. Right. right? (laughs) Right. So like, yeah, I, I, I resonate with that because that's like, okay, you know, do, do what you can do and, you know, feel as good as you can about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. So before we leave, let me ask you some questions really quickly. Okay. Favorite comedy of all time. Comedy movie? Movie. Okay. Oh, favorite comedy movie of all time. Ooh, that is a good question. That is a hard one. Yeah. I don't know of all time. Um, <laughs> cause all things, time hasn't passed. So yeah, no, that's true. This time. That's true. If we're working on Buddhist time, it's eternal. So that could be forever and ever. Um, I'm trying to think of things I'd seen recently. Uh, are you a fan of Will Ferrell? No, not even a little bit. Actually, I feel like people are love and hate <laughs> with that guy. Yeah. It yeah. really, yeah. I find him very irritating, but yeah. Adam Sandler. I liked him in high school. Stuck in the nineties, man. I know, right? Uh-huh. Where? What do you where mean the nineties? Chris Dude. Farley, <laughs> Jim Carrey, <laughs> Eddie Murphy. Airplane. Airplane was pretty All right. funny. All right, yeah. so, so so moving on. This is a tough. Maybe you'll think of this in a second. <laughs> if you could only drink one beer for the rest of your life mm-hmm. and be in solidarity with that beer, which beer would that be? <laughs> All right. Uh, my dad's people are all Midwestern, so this might be a genetic thing. It's going to be either PBR or old style. And I apologize to all of you big brew bougie snobs because that's... We're just pretending it's okay. I love these delicious, wonderful beers. I'm judging right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> I will always have PBR and old style in my fridge. So for any of those interested... But at least you're admitting that online for everybody to hear. All right. Yeah. I would, Dan, Dan wants to pretend, but like you wouldn't even admit that. PBR. What? Rob drinks PBR. Corona, by the way. This is the house. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and what books are you reading right now? Uh, let's see. So I just recently finished with The Slaughterhouse Five. 
and just recently started um, rereading a book called The 900 Grandmothers. It's this very bizarre set of sci-fi stories that are very metaphysical and kind of far out, and I hadn't read it in a while. I'm enjoying it a lot again. So We've gone comedy, eh, beer, eh. This is, I'm judging you right now. I'm totally judging you. He's Christian. It's what he does. It's what we do. Uh, That's fair. That's fair. I'll take that. Debatable. The Christian part. I stand by my choice. Oh, my goodness. Okay. What are you going to do for Halloween this year? Uh, I have no idea. So my daughter being 13 will probably trick or treat with her friends again this year, which last year left me and I shit you not sitting on the couch watching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre while finishing up a cross stitch project. So (laughs) that may be what goes on again this year. I should have asked you what's your favorite horror film? Oh, see, that's a tough one, too. Usually, hands down, it's going to be Night of the Living Dead. That movie is amazing. But there are several. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is brilliant for the genre, I have to say. It's very, very good. I like that one a lot. If you're cross-stitching while you're watching horror movies, aren't you afraid that you'll, like, jump and accidentally stab yourself? Mm, hasn't happened yet, but now now I'm going to. So thanks for that. <laughs> Absolutely gonna happen this year. <laughs> All right, happy Halloween. All right, cheers, happy everybody. Halloween. Cheers. cheers. cheers.